So let me do the intro and then you do the content. Whatever you want. Are we live right now? Maybe. Just do yourself a favor. Don't try to be funny, okay? Don't try. Because I'll tell you one thing. Don't have to try. There you go. You're trying to be funny, okay? Just don't try to be funny. Just be yourself, man. Can you turn up the music just a little bit? I need to hear this. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we're back here at Northern Seminary at the Griffith Kent Sound Studio. The new digs, as I like to call them, Northern Seminary. Down in the basement with the library. The library, did you see the new front desk at the library? The new circulation desk. Circulation desk. It's like this little bowed kind of table. It looks like the front of a ship. We like are a part of a real fancy, smanchy institution these days. Northern Seminary, folks. Lots happening. We're quite excited about it. Holesclaw's even excited about it. You know how hard it is to get him excited about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm super excited. And with all the moves... And with all the stuff going on over the last month, there's uh, we haven't been able to talk about something that kind of came up early September or late August. But now that, we're circling back. So yeah, you're talking about the Nashville statement. I am talking about the Nashville yeah, statement. Yeah, this, this very interesting statement put out by uh, a group of uh, neo-reformed, neo-Puritan, the group, the Gospel Coalition type group of people at the Southern Baptist Seminaries and so forth. All good peeps, by the way. But... Uh, they made a statement. Well, you know, I think a lot of us had issues with the statement uh, for various reasons, maybe not content-related, although, yeah, content-related because of the posture of the statement. Right. But you made an interesting <clears throat> observation that really took the conversation to a whole new level you know, on your Facebook page. You, you said you made a comment about the Nashville statements, many deny that God created human beings for his glory. That's what they say. Many deny that God created human beings for his glory. And there was something about that in the Nashville statement that bothered you. What was it? Yeah, so this was in the the preamble. Before they get to all their positions, they have this preamble. And one of the sentences, you know, it's kind of they're worried. They say many people are denying that humans are created for his glory, for God's glory. And that idea of being created for God's glory... Uh, especially in neo reform circles, the idea of God's glory is such a big topic. Well, in reform it's so circles, so central. Period. Yeah, 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 yeah. In reform circles, and even uh, one of the five solas from the whole Reformation was sola de glorias, for the glory of God alone. Like it made it into their top five of importance. Five of the the, the big five solas. Yes, the big five, which I think we should spend time going back to another time, but not right now. And so, and this is really just a reflection of the Westminster Confession. Uh, or the catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And this kind of gets at the fundamental questions of human existence. Why do we live? What is our purpose? And so, therefore, this is an apt topic for a podcast called Theology on Mission. If there's anything more concerning our mission, it has to do with our very purpose for being here. And, and dude, I loved what you did with this, and and so we're gonna like uh, like hone in on this concept of God's glory, 
and how uh, basically God has made his glory present to us and us in relationship to his glory. And how that relationship takes place really is the key here for how we engage God in his glory. Yes, while you already kind of did the turn that we're going to be headed toward, which is connecting God's glory and God's presence and access to that presence. But we need to back up a bit because a lot of Reformed people don't see God's glory as connected to God's the manifestation of God's presence or his overwhelming presence and all these types of things. Rather, they connect it with something like God's honor or God's reputation or praise. And so, and it's this verb or of God to glorify. Is a standard of holiness, yes. moral purity, of majesty, yes. of ultimacy. It's an ontological reality that's so huge. And we are called to be uh, reflectors of his glory back to him. Is that right? Yes, yes. And so I think that is the question, is when humanity is viewed as for God's glory or having been created for God's glory, then it's very easy to instrumentalize. This is what I say. It's easy to instrumentalize humanity or it's easy to make humanity an instrument for something else, which is, of course, God's glory. And I think this has very clear pastoral implications, is if we're tools for achieving God's glory, then oftentimes pastoral care is equivalent with reminding people that their hopes, their fears, their struggles, and their dreams are either increasing or decreasing God's glory. And so every decision we make, every action we do, somehow is adding to or detracting from God's glory. And pastoral care, preaching, and counseling is directed toward that goal. Yeah, and this kind of gets to, I think, a theme in Reformed theology now, folks. Now, I'm not going to, I don't want us to go all hype on knocking down Reformed theology. There is a lot of a good... So one of the things Reformed theology does do is puts us in relationship to God so it's not about me, it's about God. I find myself in God, I don't find God in myself. And I think that's the posture of the Nashville... Uh, that's the posture of Reformed theology, and that's really they're working hard on that posture in the Nashville statement. This is not about you. Gender, sexuality, etc. is not about you. It's about God. Get yourself in line with God. And um, what, what do you, what's your problem with that, Holesclaw? Well, my you problem... heretic? <laughs> my problem is that it doesn't, things don't need to be framed that way as like a, um, what is, a sum zero kind of equation. Either it's all about humanity or it's all about God. As I think, and, uh, is that it, it's all about everything. It's all about humanity. This is what I say repeatedly. It's all about, it's not all about God. It's not all about us. It's all about God with us. It's all God about God with, with us. us. So again, it's the posture issue here, folks. Okay. We believe that we find ourselves in God, but sometimes we feel like um, the way our brothers and some sisters in the Reformed world, there's not a lot of sisters, uh, just kidding, uh, sometimes our Reformed brothers and sisters make it seem like God is so huge and we are so small and that we don't count, that we are nothing and God is everything. But actually, it's the glory of God that stoops to be with us in Christ that, in fact, we become part of and participants in the glory of God. Yes, absolutely. Do you see what I'm saying there? I certainly see what you're I, it saying. It took me a while to get to you, the point, but do you can you repeat what I said so you can clarify? <clears throat> so I think 
a lot of Reformed theology, or not just theology, but because uh, I think there's a difference between what the theologians say and what the pastors say, is I think a lot of the pastoral posture uh, can be to be sure to diminish humanity so that God can be elevated. If we debase humanity, God can be elevated. And then I, I think, you know, there is a sense of, yes, well, God was debased too and became incarnate and things like this. But but there's this interesting irony is that a lot of this posture of seeking God's glory kind of ends up still being all about humanity. So this guy... Um, That's a key point, by is, the way. I hope... I hope. And, and just so that it doesn't seem like Dave and I are against Reformed theology, this guy... Uh, David Van Drunen, he wrote uh, an essay called Glory to God Alone, Another Look at Reformations, at a Reformation Sola. And we'll put this into our Facebook pages uh, immediately after I upload this. But this is an article written by a Reformed scholar, and he says, hey, look, there's some problems when we talk about God's glory all the time. Is And so this is a quote from uh, page 111. He says, but when sola de gloria is presented as if its heart and essence concerns how we live, how we carry out our vacation, how we formulate and execute political agendas, we might ponder whether what was supposed to magnify God alone has taken a puzzling anthropomorphic turn. To say that sola de gloria has something to do with Christian conduct is certainly true, and you and I would both affirm that. But back to the quote, he says, but to make our conduct its main focus is at least a distortion of the Reformation doctrine. And so it's so often when we're talking about for the glory of God alone, it's us who seem to need to bring God this glory. I have all this uh, chuckling, uh, I chuckle quite a bit about uh, different worship songs, like especially in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were all these worship songs that would say, not for our glory, but for yours alone. But they were sung by large bands up on huge stages with light shows, shining down on the people saying, not my glory, but your glory alone. And there was this kind of weird dissonance between people drawing yeah. attention to themselves, worship leaders, oh, and songs idea. drawing attention to themselves, and yet saying it's not us, it's not about us, it's about you. And yeah. I think that sometimes we can get into this problem where we're saying it's all for God, but we're the ones who have to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. Uh, it's not about me, it's all about you. Uh, or actually it's about God being with us. And so it's like I can't be separated from my relationship in the presence of God. Um, and so I love what you're trying to say here about reframing uh, glory. Uh, glory is not this unattainable, massive majesty of God, although it is massive, it is majestic, it is unattainable. But it's about this, uh, this God of majesty coming to be with us in all his presence through Jesus Christ. And out of being in relationship with him, we are drawn to him, drawn into him. By his presence, we are transformed. Um, and that kind of just changes the whole dynamic. I feel like the Nashville Statement, as is quite often the case with my Reformed brothers and sisters, uh, has a posture problem. We affirm this. We deny this. Um, there's no like, um, can I put it this way? Presence there. There's no like um, self-reflection as to what we need to know and understand about ourselves in relation to God. And so we we lose, like, like one of the things that uh, bothers me 
about this statement and the way we talk about uh, LGBT and other alternative sexuality issues is we say this is the way it's got to be our way or the highway where in actuality if we get in relationship uh, with God we will see that maybe the ways we have framed gender and the ways we have framed marriage and the ways we've made it in our churches so you got to look like this perfect male and this perfect female and you got to feel this certain feeling right off a almost uh hollywood movie script and and most of us can't relate to that and so all i'm trying to say is there's no reflection this is not the glory of god maybe we need to look at the way we're thinking about marriage maybe maybe we need to look at the way we're not reflecting god's glory in our current understandings of marriage and gender. And, and, and so all I'm trying to say here is, folks, uh, the glory of God comes through Christ to reveal himself. And in that revealing, we reveal who we are. And sometimes that reveals where we fall short, but also it calls us into fullness with Christ. Well, amen to that. So, and certainly Jesus is the full revelation of God's glory, but we need to back up. Uh, to the Old Testament before we can truly understand what that means. So I just wanted to spend just a minute going through some things because there's a problem with our translations and there's a problem with our concepts because certainly in one sense we are called to glorify God. You see this all the time in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that we are called to give God glory, to glorify God. All creation glorifies God. But these are verbs. Now, when you see the noun, the glory of God, uh, it's something different. And so the verbs do have to do with praise. They have to do with honor. They have to do with reputation or things like that. But the noun um, is different. And a lot of times we think that they're equating to the same thing, but they're not. So in the Old Testament, whenever you see the glory of God at work, it's really a manifestation. It's a, a manifestation, an overwhelming uh, nearness or presence of God. And in Mount Sinai, it's a terrifying presence. But uh, when it, when God's glory comes onto the tabernacle or the temple, it's its also a terrifying experience, but it's much more welcoming. And so there's different kind of ways God's glory appears, but it's really this appearing, and it's appearing and a promise of God's very presence. You get this in Ezekiel when God's glory does what? It leaves Jerusalem because of the punishment of the people, and then God's glory comes back, right? So God's glory is very connected not to his reputation, not to his honor. God's honor and reputation are not a part of the word God's glory. And so when God's glory shows up again in Jesus, it's the presence. And this goes back to your posture question. Is God's glory, is it something that we need to tend to or uh, bolster or somehow uh, lift up? Or is it something to uh, be present to? Is it something be to enter into? To it's a totally different thing. For him. And it is relational and it is scary and it is transformational, but it is not a just purely a distancing concept. You know, the Reformation is always going to emphasize the depravity of the human soul and, and our sinfulness and our sinful nature. But, you know, it's not just us being separate from God's glory. Actually, God comes in Christ to be present with his glory to us. And so if I can make a, a bold statement, I want to affirm the Nashville statement when they say we are made for God's glory. I just want to disagree with what it means when they say for God's glories. I want to say humanity was made to dwell in God's presence. 
And everything God is doing and everything the church should be doing is to be entering into and offering and extending God's presence. And so if we're made for God's presence, then the documents and the declarations and even our doctrines should be supporting and embodying that kind of posture of a welcoming presence rather than the posture of needing to manage some reputation on God's part by reducing us or I don't I don't yep. know what but it's a totally different thing so can we affirm that we are made for God's glory and by that we mean dwelling in God's presence and as Irenaeus said uh, he said what is God's glory God's glory is humanity fully alive and this goes into all the passages of glorification is God is glorifying humanity and glorifying the whole world and what does that mean it doesn't mean that he's giving well, I mean, God does give us honor and praise and things like that, but it means he's infusing us with his divine life. This is where the idea yeah. of, of deification comes so from. So if you can summarize in one, let's say, three sentences, I always think great theologians can summarize things in two or three sentences about the Nashville Statement. What would you say? About the Nashville Statement? The yeah, whole statement? I, well, I, I just think... Statement okay. number one, I worry that the statement has the posture of instrumentalizing human beings on the topic of sexuality, sentence one. And using God's glory to do it. And using, yes, sentence two is we need to reframe the understanding of being made for God's glory so that it entails God's presence. Sentence number three, and if we understand God's presence uh, as his glory, then let us as the church be the glory of God in the world by being a welcoming presence and let that affect how we talk about and how we minister and how we work through issues of sexuality. Wow. You are at least in this podcast, a brilliant theologian, <laughs> Jeff Holesclaw. Now the, the other, yeah. So I would just say the posture of the Nashville statement closes conversation. I know they say they meant it only for Christians and to affirm, but we need more than ever now, and this is really where um, the church is going to arrive. If we're going to engage mission, we need to engage this mission field through not foreclosing, closing off conversation, but opening conversation. I don't feel like the Nashville Statement did that. All right. Um, are we almost done with this topic? It was a great topic. Um, I just want to read 2 Corinthians 3, yes, let's verse do it. 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of, the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains where the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... Mm -hmm. The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. From one degree of glory to another, we are being transformed. Amen to that. And that's one of the key passages uh, another one that we could go into, well, we have time. I mean, we could go into it or we could save it for later, but is uh, Romans 3.23. This is a famous kind of conversion, Romans Road passage. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. the glory of God. And so often we take that verse to mean we have fallen short of God's moral standard. We have violated his divine law. 
and uh, we are excluded because we are imperf- imperfect yes. beings. And then you have a whole atonement theology that could come up around that. But what if we understood God's glory as God's presence? All have fallen short or all have wandered away from God's glory, from God's presence. All have fallen short of God's presence. Made possible It, to- it totally Jesus changes Christ. how we understand what the fall is or what uh, the problem is of sin, and it changes how we understand what the solution is. Yeah, and so um, I just, you know, uh, by the way, shout out to Graham Ware, pastor of First Baptist Church, Thomas, St. Thomas, Ontario, who did a sermon on this. He sent me some notes on this. And then, by the way, I found everything that uh, Graham Ware said confirmed in this article uh, that you already referred to, David Van Drunen, Glory to God Alone, another look at the Reformation solo. You're going to put that on the, the notes. but uh, you It'll know, be I, on our Facebook page, Facebook Facebook page, uh, Theology on Mission. Yeah, and, and, and the last thing I just want to say is uh, I have learned much from, the, from Reformed theologians on this issue of glory, as well as many other things. I'm going to be at the... Uh, uh, at the Reformation Conference in uh, McMaster Divinity School, Hamilton, Ontario, October 27th, 28th. It's going to be a great conference on the Reformation in post-Christendom or post-Christian society. Think about that. How does the Reformation play in a society that's no longer Christian? I'm going to say it doesn't. But anyways, Maybe we need another Reformation. <laughs> we need another. Can we come up it's with new? Be, should we come up with new solas? You and I have turned into such Anabaptists. Uh, not a recent guys. thing. That's true. Hey, uh, hey, are you ready for Fitch versus Fitch? I'm bringing this out. Oh, Fitch dude, versus Fitch, October 9th. Uh, totally unprepared for this, 45. folks. That's what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be unprepared. Fitch versus Fitch is when I take Dave Fitch's words that he posted on Facebook and confront him. Or Twitter. With his own words. No, I just use Facebook. So you say, the act of submission initiates. I see it as leadership. When I propose something and then say, I submit it to you. I am you read starting it so fast, nobody can the get it. process of discernment in motion. Yeah. The act of submission initiates, and this is leadership. How is it leadership? If you're submitting well, and doing nothing, you're giving up leadership. You're no, a contradiction, Dave Fitch. No, 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 folks. Uh, I submit to you is an act of leadership. It is the way leadership works. False. It is abdication kingdom. of leadership. Folks, when we're so so we're opening up space to discern what God's doing in this space by saying, I submit to you. So I always say when I'm in uh, church meetings with uh, fellow pastors, I mean, I don't always say it, but sometimes I have to say, it. hey, you're the evangelist in the group or you're the apostle in the group or you're the pastor. Make a proposal about this issue and then say, I submit to you. And then we discern it together. All the gifts work together and, and we discern it as a people. Now, ironically, and I really did like this, Ephesians chapter 5 starts out with the wife saying, I submit, submit your wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, and then husbands die for your wives. Why does he start with wives? I mean, some of it has to do with context and household codes, and that's, that's the way they were written. But I think we can read it that way. I know this is dangerous. If any of you New Testament scholars want to debate me on this, I'm fine with it. I've got a theological approach to interpreting Scripture, not just a historical, critical, authorial intent. But I won't go into that right now. But I believe because he mentions the woman first, and she says, and and she submits to the husband. That's an act of leadership. So ironically, in Ephesians chapter 5, where hierarchy is overcome, women submitting to men, to mar- in, in marriage is 
The woman is the leader. The man is the follower. Ladies and gentlemen, revolution Boom. again. Ephesians chapter 5. And of course, that whole passage is uh, is prefaced with su- submit one submit to another. Submit yourselves one to another. To the Lord. Of, one to another. The mutuality that we have um, is the is the prerequisite. It's the shaping foundation for all the rest of those commands or those ideas in the household codes. We should have a podcast on that. On the household codes? On the household codes Absolutely. as mutual formation, mutuality, and the way God works in the world. All right. If you want a podcast on uh, the household codes or the solas or uh, new solas for a new reformation or whether the reformation should uh, even I am confused now what you just said. Don't worry. I'll put it on the I'll put it on the <laughs> I'll put it on the website. It doesn't even matter. Well this is Jeff Wolsklaw, Dave Fitch. You can find us on Twitter at where where can we find you, Dave? Oh, uh, Fitch Est, one word, F I T C H E S T. He's not Fitch, he's not Fitch Er, he's Fitch Est. That's right. And I'm Jeff Wolsklaw at just at Jeff Wolsklaw on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook also. We'd love to talk to you there. Uh Thank you for another great episode, Dave Fitch. That just about does it for another episode of Theology on Mission. We will see you next week, same time, same station, in the Griffith New Recording Studio, Northern Live, Northern Seminary, Chicago. All right. Talk to you later.